to Media Democracy, a podcast about politics, the media, and the politics of the media. My co-host as ever is Tom Mills, TA underscore Mills on Twitter, and my name is Dan Hind. We are brought to you by the Media Fund, and you can find out more about the Media Fund and its work on Twitter and Facebook. This week we're delighted to welcome Caroline Malloy, and we're going to be talking to... Hello, Caroline. And we're going to be talking to Caroline in a few minutes about, um, about the NHS. Before we move on to that... And the main body of the show. Tell me, what are your highlights of the week, Tom? What uh, what should media noughts be thinking about? I should be thinking about an article in the Observer, which was a real treat that um, this Sunday just gone, which was addressing what I think is a sort of important question for our podcast, which is, can you trust the mainstream media? Um, and this was a very very long piece, which managed to get to like I think over five thousand words by a guy called Andrew Harrison, um, who I understand is co-presenter of uh, the Romaniacs podcast. So a fellow podcaster, a comrade, if you will. And uh, uh, he managed to to get through, I don't know, 5,000 words. It's sort of, it's a a lot, isn't it? And it's quite unruly. And so it's long. And so it starts with the question of whether you can trust the mainstream media. And then sort of arrives eventually at the question of whether you can trust the canary, which then becomes the sort of kind of climax of the piece, really. And the answer, you know, is, is no. And so it just sort of, it doesn't actually end up answering the question at all. It's kind of an extraordinary piece, really, where, I mean, there are a couple of things that were annoying about it. There's quite a lot of things that are annoying about it. But one of the things that really annoyed me was that they managed to go through this whole discussion as to whether you can trust the media without citing any kind of scholarly evidence on on media content. You know, there was almost like no discussion whatsoever of uh, reporting failures, reporting patterns, or, you know, there was a sort of discussion about narratives and the immediate political context and, and Grenfell and these sort of things. Um, I'm not recommending that people read it, um, but anyway, that, that was a big event. What, what did you make of it then? Well, as you say, it's quite unusual to have a, a, a piece of that length uh, about the media as a sector um, in, a, in a national newspaper. Um, and it, the execution, in a way, sort of demonstrated some of the problems that it, was, it, was, it seemed hell-bent on trying to minimise. Um, as you say, there was, no, there was no sense of a principled engagement with the, with the academic research that was out there. Um, just a lot of chit chat about what journalists thought about what what the public thought about them, um, and this didn't seem yeah it didn't seem like a very helpful um, approach. And it, I think there's a there's a useful sort of contrast to be drawn um, with Andrew O'Hagan's piece for the London Review of Books about Facebook, where he he reviews a number of recent books about modern media, and I think he does a very good job there of synthesising um, contemporary understandings of how the information surveillance economy platforms work. How you know how Facebook turns um, 
our online activity into a marketable data. Um, and I think he captures some of the um, the strangeness of that world, some of the um, some of the pathologies of that world in a way that's um, that you know it just seems like a much better sort of expression of of what journalism can do. Um, uh, so I would uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't tell people to race to to read the Observer piece, but if but do check out the LRB piece by Andrew O'Hagan on on Facebook. I think that's that does reward. Our attention. Now, the thing that's not annoying about the observer piece, um, just before we put it to bed, it was like also it was so long that there's no way they're going to revisit it and do it properly. So it's just like, well, right, they've done that now. They've done that now, so they can get on and stop. Like the media loves to say, "Oh, we we mustn't be self-involved," so we'll we'll get on with ignoring our structural role now. Um, Yeah, exactly. Now, jobs are good. I am delighted uh, to welcome Caroline Malloy to the show this week. So am I. Hi, Caroline. Hi there, guys. Hi. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Caroline. Caroline edits our RNHS, um, which is one of the um, strands on open democracy, and she campaigns both nationally and locally uh, for a publicly provided and high-quality NHS. And Caroline, we're going to be talking this week um, a little bit about where we are uh, in, in with the NHS at the moment, how we got there, talk a little bit about... Um, the way in which change in the NHS and, and its current circumstances are, are being described. And then we'll move on and talk a bit about things that we can do uh, practically to push back against um, the prevailing direction of travel. So can we start, Caroline, with your sense of of where we are with the NHS and, and how we got here? OK, thank you. Um yeah, I, I think at the moment, I mean, we hear, it's interesting to hear your, your preliminary talk about the media and, and one of the rationales for setting up our NHS open, as part of open democracy was a sense that media coverage of what's happening to the NHS is leaving people uh, quite confused and there's a need for different voices. So we've been running since just after the 2012 Health and Social Care Act which was obviously a, a kind of pivotal moment in shaping what's 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 happening now in terms of the NHS. Um, I think people who sort of hear the NHS discussion on the mainstream media, you know, tends to talk quite a lot about the funding issues. Uh, so, for example, we've had a little bit in the news uh, in recent weeks about mental health funding. Jeremy Hunt, uh, the health secretary, presenting himself as a, a champion of mental health, as indeed Theresa May said it was one of her, her top concerns. Um, and it was announced, for example, Jeremy Hunt announced that there were going to be 4,000 new mental health uh, professionals uh, introduced. Of course, this was the fact that this was not new money right. uh, and with money being diverted from uh, from, from schools uh, and, and money put aside for, for healthy schools and for, for prevention and stuff like that was, was largely missed, um, as was the fact that uh, if you're increasing uh, mental health staffing by 4,000, but you've actually lost 6,000 mental health nursing posts since 2010, you're not even replacing uh, the the hemorrhage of staff. And I think that's, 
you know, that's an issue in, in, in mental health, but it's also an issue across the NHS. The, the demoralisation and the loss of staff is probably, you know, the staff, the backbone of the NHS, they account for something like 70% of its expenditure. Uh, uh, it's, it's held together. I frequently talk to NHS professionals who tell me it's held together on goodwill and string at the moment. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, when we're talking about money, the media seem to want to divert it into a discussion, an endless discussion about magic money trees and where's the money going to come from in one sense, but they're not really looking at, well, where are the staff going to come from if the government has, uh, can I say pissed off on your podcast? You can say you want, really. Yes. We have, <laughs> no, uh, we have no truck with Ofcom, so we can... Yeah, we're unregulated here. You're completely... Yeah. You're, completely you're, in a, you're in a space where you can express yourself as you wish, yeah. So... A, a safe, sweary space. <laughs> <laughs> a safe, sweary space, thank you. I'll try not to swear too much. But, you know, the government has pissed off staff... Uh, more than it, to probably the most single irresponsible thing it's done with the NHS, which is quite which is saying something really. So you you have now a situation where something like four out of five GPs say that they are seriously considering leaving the NHS within the next five years. Uh, you have a situation where the staff have had a, a below inflation or frozen. Uh, pay increase, so an effective pay cut for seven years on the run, and obviously that's a debate that's that's uh, become uh, quite prominent recently. Um, but I think underpinning all of these issues about funding and staffing, the other thing that we have to see as as the sort of drumbeat under underlying a lot of what's happening in the NHS, which has been going on for many years, predating the coalition government, is uh, the issue of privatisation. I'm sure you're familiar with the Noam Chomsky quote where he says uh, that's the standard technique of privatisation. Defund, make sure things don't work, people get angry, you hand it over to private capital. And I think it's quite clear that we're somewhere in the midst of that journey currently. Uh, People are angry and there's a big job of work at the moment going on by, uh, should we say, media influencers to direct that anger to the to the wrong quarters and away from the right quarters uh, and to look for the convenient scapegoats and to set the narrative in, in that way. Uh, whether it's working for the government is a, is a moot point. Sure. Uh, you know, the, their poll ratings are suffering and, and the NHS is definitely high up on voters' lists of concerns. But... Uh, yeah, I think that's that's uh, in a nutshell where what some of the things I'd like to talk about a bit more during the show. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, Tom. Caroline, the in terms of um, yeah the, the defunding and the handing over to private capital, I suppose mm. the other element of that is that uh, before the NHS is ever sort of handed over, there's a sort of process of policy changes which need to be to be made in order to increase private sector involvement or some eventual privatisation. Could you talk a bit about? the sort of stages there and because you, you mentioned it happening in in the Blairite era what, what were the what were the key steps that were taken there that laid the groundwork for the, for the coalition government's reforms? Yeah sure I mean one of the things when I sort of first came into looking at the NHS a few years ago one of the sort of timelines that I saw that really helped me understand this is that privatisation of health systems 
follows the, the same basic trajectory internationally. It's quite consistent. So you start off by privatising the auxiliary services, things like cleaning, catering, portering, and that's something that started under Thatcher in the 1980s. So, for example, uh, Lord Ashcroft, not, not everyone's aware, I think there was quite an interesting piece in Vice by Solomon Hughes about how Lord Ashcroft uh, had made his fortune from the privatisation of NHS cleaning back in the 80s. So that's the first thing that happens. Then you tend uh, generally to move on to privatisation of the buildings. Uh, and of course, Britain in this, in a sense, pioneered a new form of privatisation of the buildings, which was private finance initiative, uh, which is, is something that's been quite well explored. And I think quite often when people think about NHS privatisation, they think about private finance initiative and PFI because there has been uh, for many years quite a vocal campaign against that. And, you know, that started under the 1980, uh, early 1990s uh, Conservative government, but was put, uh, someone expressed it as it was given rocket boosters by the Blair government who embraced PFI, who's uh, probably most uh, most Blairite of all his uh, health secretaries, Alan Milburn, uh, told local NHS bosses wanting to refurbish or rebuild hospitals that it was PFI or bust, of course. Right. Was... Just, I, I imagine most people would be familiar, but just very quickly, could you just explain what, what, PFI, um, what PFI is and what it was meant to do? Yeah, well... It's an accounting trick, essentially. You know, you had the, the government was, was enthralled to the idea that rather than uh, government borrowing being put into capital expenditure, into building new hospitals and indeed schools and other areas of the public sector infrastructure, that you could uh, work, do a deal with the private sector in which that borrowing didn't show up as public sector borrowing uh, on the, the, the government accounts. Uh, but the, the the sting in the tail of that, that deal was that it meant that private sector borrowing was at a much higher rate of interest, uh, a much more expensive and much less accountable way of actually uh, obtaining finance. So you have a variety of private finance initiative deals, typically where a hospital that was built would be built with money borrowed and arranged by the private sector with a huge amount of uh, legal and accountants fees hanging on and, and inflating the costs still further, tying those hospitals into 30 or even 50 year deals where they continue to pay essentially over the odds uh, for the building of the hospital and quite often for a package of auxiliary services, maintenance, sometimes cleaning and stuff like that all bundled in together. Um, it's it's, it's kind of like buying a hospital on a very expensive credit card in, in some senses. Um, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, yeah, great. So, sorry, I broke up your flow slightly. So we were yeah. talking about different uh, the different stages. Sure. So, so you start off with the, the auxiliary services, then you go to the, the buildings, sometimes with those auxiliary services um, bundled in. 
then the next stage tends to be the kind of less visible services, what sometimes called the back office services, uh, but does include clinical stuff. So things like a, a good example would be pathology. You know, your your test results uh, are often now sent to privatise. When you know you may not be aware of this, but that when you have a test on the NHS, they're sent off to uh, a private lab to analyse. Uh, that was a really big program under the Blair government under Lord Carter. Um, and so, and, and also le other less visible things, things like um, non-emergency ambulance services, for example, patient transport, the things that transport seriously ill but not acutely ill people from hospital to home, uh, also began to be extensively privatised. And only at the end of that journey, really, do you begin to privatise uh, more straightforward clinical services um, and your actual doctoring and nursing. So that's that's kind of the journey. The, the journey that we follow that we had followed up until the point of the coalition government, we were already well underway. We had already started to see clinical services being privatised uh, under the the creation of the independent sector treatment treatment centres. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with that. Shall I say a bit about that? Yeah, no, do yeah, yeah do, 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 yeah. Give, give give some background so, on that. Yeah. So so what you had. I mean, it's interesting because just just to rewind slightly, you know, Thatcher famously, you know, declassified papers showed that she she had sort of backed off of full-throated NHS privatisation, and I think they all realised that some sort of, uh, you know, big bang, tell Sid style sell-off wasn't going to wash with the British public and would probably take bring people out onto the streets in large numbers. So it was done in this bit by bit way. Um, the the, the when the, the Blair government came in in 97, they actually backed away from some of the earlier marketisation. Uh, the key thing that had happened and the earlier marketisation was the, the idea of the purchase of provider split. Right. The idea that you split the NHS up into um, uh, a part, various different local organisations that hold the money on the one hand and various different local hospital trusts and ambulance trusts and community services trusts who are the providers of care. Of course, once you've done that, you also open up the opportunity for private sector providers of care to come in and compete with the NHS, to bid for contracts, to provide these services, to get the NHS cash. And that is the system that Blair, when he first came to power in 97, backed away from under influence of conference policy, then in 2000, uh, they managed to kind of de, what's the word, de-democratise uh, government policy around the NHS, sort of, you know, reduce the role of conference and all of that kind of thing. And from that point, uh, the trajectory was set, which we're still on, really. So in 2000, uh, the Labour government came up with this thing called the NHS Plan, uh, and they signed what was called a concordat with the private sector, where they invited in the private sector to uh, undertake various clinical procedures. Uh, and one of the ways they did this was by setting up um, very sweetened deals uh, for, for private hospitals, which until that point hadn't really had much chance of making money in the UK, to set up new independent sector treatment centres, which tended to do the sort of routine, easy operations, things like hip operations, right. cataract removals, that kind of stuff, uh, which was an easy source of, of profits for them. 
It's interesting as well that those those spun off services that cosmetically they were often they you know they they often seem quite pleasant, right? That they like the coffee, they'd be nice coffee and like it would be slightly less manic than a, a than a, a, a hospital environment. And it seems to me that that was that there was quite an interesting sort of perception management game going on with this because if you took some, a relatively simple procedure and you spun it out into the private sector people who used it would think actually you know what you know private provision is quite good isn't it um so i think that there was there was a sort of interesting as i say there was sort of people were being spun even at the, at the point of treatment um karen before we before we go on can we talk a bit more about the the way in which the the center left sort of t- got tangled up in um this uh this sort of management consultant class because when we were, when we were reviewing the, the 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 articles that you you've written and other people have written about the NHS over the years, one of the themes that, that comes across very strongly is this sense that um, the mainstream Labour Party in particular just seem to be completely hemmed in by and captured by people with um, a background in management consultancy, a background in private healthcare, um, and the the sense that I have that the language of progress was very successfully corporatized. Um, the idea that things need to change in order to get better is kind of sort of fairly commonsensical, but injected into that was the idea that change had to be corporate in nature. So, could we talk a bit more about this? This sort of apparently sort of um, slightly unexpected lashing up of of the Labour Party with these consultants. Mm. I mean, I think that uh, you know. To some extent, we obviously see at the moment that there is, uh, you know, a, a faction within Labour who are absolutely uh, wedded to uh, the ideas that they've been pursuing over the last 30 years uh, and, and a fairly kind of neoliberal agenda. But I think it's fairly widely accepted that there's also the bulk of that. Well, in my view. You know, the, the bulk of the late, certainly the parliamentary Labour Party is kind of going with the flow, um, you know, swims with the tide, really. And, and so I think that the sort of centre left capture, you're absolutely right, this idea that progress must be delivered uh, through the, the wonders of competition or creative destruction or other terms that they like to use um, is, is, is kind of, you know, yeah, be, be, being, as you say, sort of surprisingly expounded. Um, I just wanted to read you actually an example of uh, the kind of, uh, you know, I think, it's, I think it's a really good point you make about the, um, the kind of glossy, uh, glossy cover of, of privatisation. Yeah. Um, this is something actually from the Daily Mail, forgive me, uh, who wrote this about uh, the first, uh, not the first, the only NHS hospital at the time that had been entirely privatised, so it hadn't followed the normal pattern of privatisation, it had um, it had actually privatised the whole thing, which was Hinchingbrook Hospital. And they wrote, just imagine an NHS hospital whose, stand- whose standards match those of a top quality hotel with a welcoming, <laughs> with a welcoming reception area, polished floors, tasteful artwork on the freshly painted walls and menus inspired by a Michelin-starred chef. A public hospital where the doctors and nurses and even porters and cleaners are free to decide what's best for the patient. 
uh, it sounds like a pipe dream. If you <laughs> <laughs> I love the so, idea of tasteful art as well. That's really that's a nice. You're just touch. sort of thrown in for good measure. Yeah. The one thing that's objectionable about the NHS, <laughs> yeah. and public healthcare in general, is the lack of taste in its. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just it's just there's relentless avant-gardism in the NHS, and I think yeah, we've we had enough a lot of from from NHS campaigners about that. Yeah. But <laughs> so funny how that never gets mentioned. <laughs> just, just to contrast that, so you, you may, your, your listeners may be aware that Hinch and Book, uh, about a year after the Daily Mail wrote that PN, and there were similar PNs in the the Times and indeed on Newsnight. Uh, the CQC published the Care Quality Commission, which is the, the regulator of, of care standards, published an absolutely damning report uh, into Hinch and Brook. Uh, they gave it the worst rating for caring of any hospital that they'd ever assessed. Uh, to, just to quote from the report, a couple of quite chilling examples. They said, uh, "We heard the staff member say to the patient, don't misbehave. You know what happens when you misbehave.'" We later asked the patient what they thought the staff member meant by this. The patient became withdrawn and was unable to provide us with an answer. A patient on Apple Tree Ward who required support during the night to go to the toilet told us that staff were often too busy. They said, they tell me to go in my bed and they will change me when they have time. And there were, the, 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 the stuff goes on, there's, there's talk about... Doctors at that privatised hospital labelling patients do not resuscitate without question, without discussing the decision with patients or relatives. I mean, it was basically, you know, as bad, if not worse, as anything that happened at Mid-Staffordshire or anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, the, the, the glossy walls and the, the nice art had, had essentially, um, yeah, been, been spun in exactly the way you say. Um, I think the other thing about Hinch and Book that's quite interesting, and, and perhaps it answers part of your question about the centre-left's attitude to what was going on, is that Hinchinbrook is interesting uh, because as is, is um, partly referenced in that first Daily Mail piece about staff and even the porters having involvement and all that kind of stuff, is that uh, Hinchinbrook was sold to us uh, at the time as a, a kind of a staff mutual a kind of cooperative enterprise, which some on the centre-left, you know, were, were really, you know, on the back foot about the idea of socialism, hadn't sort of noticed the 2008 crash and continued to be on the back foot about the idea of socialism and were rather uh, easily persuaded that rather than this sort of dreadful Stalinist idea of the NHS, that we needed to kind of split it up and form it into cooperatives and mutuals. And Hinchinbrook was, because of their rather complicated structure, was cited as an example of that and how staff were going to have massive, massively more say. I mean, it was all complete spin. The unions were furious about what was going on at Hinchinbrook. Staff who spoke out were, 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 were silenced. Um, but I think that's, that's one sort of, you know, not maybe not the most obvious undercurrent, but definitely an undercurrent of some of the um, the Labour centre-left's acceptance of what was going on in the NHS, that they and kind of fought into this. This was kind of at a time when the Tories were talking about big society, and yeah. I remember um, George Osborne talking about John Lewis as kind of a model of, uh, you know, the direction the state should take. Exactly. And indeed, um, you know, I mean, incidentally, Hinchinbrook was actually owned by a, uh, a, a complicated corporate structure, which um, 
the majority shareholder in was uh, Circle Holdings, who were majority owned by uh, rich hedge fund uh, individuals who had mostly donated to the Conservative Party. So it was, it was a complete myth, really. Um, but another example of this that I'm very familiar with, because I fought it in my own area in Gloucestershire, was, and indeed this is where I started getting involved in uh, NHS campaigning, really, was they announced that nine community hospitals in Gloucestershire, and indeed they did similar things across other parts of the country, were going to be spun out of the NHS and going to become mutuals. Uh, and that this, this was going to be, again, the same rhetoric, this was going to be wonderful for staff. Um, the reality was that staff hadn't been consulted, they were absolutely furious about it. The, the actual sort of democratic and participative structures were incredibly weak right. uh, and, in, and in effect it was just going to be another private company uh, you know not subject to say to freedom of information with the same kind of um, uh, secrecy and all the problems that privatization brings um, a number of these we, we uh, in Gloucestershire took the government to the high court and actually stopped this transfer going through which was um, probably my proudest moment really right. but it, it it did happen in, in other parts of the country and where it happened, despite the kind of rhetoric around, around you know, the Rochdale cooperators and all of this kind of stuff, as I say, it led to a huge amount of secrecy so that, for example, when staff were being transferred and questions were asked in Parliament about the numbers of staff, uh, the numbers of nurses and doctors now working for these new spun out mutuals or social enterprises or whatever you want to call them, uh, Parliament was told that no figures could be given on nurses working in those hospitals because it was commercially confidential, um, which, you know, can you imagine if, if someone stood up in Parliament and said, I can't tell you how many nurses are working for, uh, you know, an NHS hospital because it's it's confidential. Right, it's an official secret, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's an interesting, I mean, this this touches, doesn't it, on, on the media treatment of this issue because the way that Lanz's reforms w were described endlessly put into this idea that GPs were going to be in the driving seat and that they would be pushing for, um, you know, they, they they would know their patients and they'd be the best, they're the best, best place people to uh, decide on treatment for them. And yet, if you, if you look behind the curtain, it was clear that it was this was another another round of marketization, wasn't it? That there was another it was this was creating another kind of market like um producer provider or you know um another sort of market type split that could then be um that could then be corporatized. And yet the coverage overwhelmingly accepted the government's description at at face value. Can we talk a bit about why why coverage of the NHS and healthcare more generally is, is so often sort of framed by um, by these dominant interests, you know, in, in, in spite of, of the reality that's fairly obvious. Um, yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, a, a really clear example that springs to mind, uh, you know, as you say, that the coverage 
from the 2012 Health Act onwards has been this kind of mythology of, of putting the doctors in charge when in fact the main thing that the 2012 Act did was just to say you know actually you really have to open it up to private competition now they changed the procurement regulations um, and they also quite importantly in that act took away the, the health the health secretary's duty to secure or provide comprehensive and universal health services so I always try and emphasize you know what, what people care about in a health service is that it has it's going to give them the health care they need uh, at, at the point they need it um, and that's not the aspect that's really emphasized in press coverage and media coverage and it's not that surprising I mean one of the things that the BBC did I was quite shocked to learn uh, when the 2012 Act was going through the BBC has this thing called the BBC College I don't know if you've come across it where it briefs its journalists on issues that are a bit complicated right so they ran, they ran a session during the passage of that Healthcare Act uh, and they had a number of what they termed independent experts come in to brief their own journalists uh, and, and one of the so-called independent experts who was invited into that session and I saw this on video was a chap called Nick Seddon who had been the head of communications at Circle Health, the company we were just talking about, uh, had then moved to the very pro-market think tank reform. Uh, Extraordinary. Subsequently, became David Cameron's main health advisor, and now works for United Health, which is the largest health corporation in in the world. Um, so you know, people like that are being. Uh, touted as independent uh, experts to BBC journalists, no wonder perhaps their coverage uh, was quite poor. I mean, the idea of, of, of experts appearing on our TV programmes um, and in our media with their interests not being fully revealed, of course, is, is one that's quite um, familiar. I mean, there was a, a more recent example I was listening to a couple of months ago where Nick Robinson was presenting the Westminster Hour on, on Radio 4 and he invited in uh, four experts to set the debate about you know, looking to the future of the NHS and where we need to go from here. Uh, and those experts were a chap called Carol Sikora, who was presented as a doctor, who's the only uh, medical doctor present, one of the most pro-privatisation doctors that you could possibly find. Uh, they then had a senior civil servant who was presented as the kind of voice of uh, the money side of things. You had uh, Alison Pollock, who was the only voice from what you might uh, describe as the left, Professor Alison Pollock, who's done a lot of work on private finance initiative and more recently on um, how you could legislatively reform the NHS to get it, to get rid of all this market mess, really. So it was good they had her. But the other voices, as I say, Socorro, this civil servant, and the voice of moderation was presented, or sort of left centre-left moderation, if you like, was indeed Alan Milburn. Uh, what the BBC didn't tell us was that Alan Milburn's now working for PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC, uh, and they talked about Milburn's work... Uh, how he had decided he was getting together with two other former health secretaries. They were described by Robinson as the three wise men. Milburn, now at PwC, but that wasn't mentioned. Former Tory health secretary Stephen Dorrell, now at KPMG, but that wasn't mentioned. Uh, and Norman Lamb. So, you know, we're not being told about the, um, the private sector interests that are underlying uh, some of our 
debate. Um, I mean, I don't only want to talk about the BBC, but I think, you know, I personally do feel quite betrayed by the BBC, and I think quite a lot of other people do. Um, you know, and, and of course, the BBC itself is, is subject, as I'm sure you, you guys know, I know you've written a bit about this, Tom, it's subject to some of the same outsourcing and potential for conflicts of interest as indeed the NHS is. So a really good example of that would be Question Time. I don't know if you know that Question Time is not produced in-house by the BBC. Do you know who, who produces it? I, I, I knew that it was the company, but... Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's produced by a company called Mentorn, right. who are owned by a private equity company called Vitruvian. Uh, and Vitruvian have a range of interests, including in private sector healthcare, uh, including a company called Healthcare at Home, which is very much uh, making its money from promoting the message, which we hear in quite a lot in the media, about how hospitals aren't very great places and we should probably uh, close quite a lot of them down and we should have more care in the community and care in people's houses. Of course, the fact that this is quite expensive way of providing healthcare and it's somewhat easier to um, privatise and charge for it once it's taken out of a hospital setting where um, you tend to get more resistance is, is quite interesting. So there are all kinds of uh, interests groups. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Kind of, I mean, you're absolutely right about the BBC. I mean, it's... It's not well understood, but the BBC has gone through a similar sort of patterns of prioritisation, the sort that you've been describing in the case of the NHS. I mean, actually, when they started marketising the BBC, they were copying a pilot programme of the internal market in the NHS. And then there was a meeting at the top of the BBC where they sort of said, oh, we shouldn't call it the internal market because, you know, that's developing this kind of negative connotation around the NHS. And then they end up calling it producer choice. But it's exactly the same sort of... Um, small steps towards prioritisation, you know, building buyer-seller relationships within um, public sector institutions. And, and again, you had the, a similar sort of problem with the BBC in the sense that it has a lot of sort of public support um, and affection, you know, which made it much more difficult for the sort of prioritisation, just like you said, with, um, with the NHS. But I do think that helps to explain some of the BBC's orientation on these kinds of things. Because when you th if you think of the BBC actually as being you know, to, to a certain degree embedded within these same sort of commercial networks to some extent. It, it doesn't, perhaps it doesn't seem that strange to a producer at the BBC that um, a person you'd approach for um, apparently independent expertise would be somebody in the pay of private healthcare. But I think to most people that does seem he wasn't extraordinary. I should, I should emphasise, he wasn't directly at the time. He was working for, uh, he had been, and then he was working for Reform, who have had plenty of money from private healthcare and uh, from the health insurance industry as well. Um, and, and I think one, I mean, one of the, the key, you know, because people are, you know, stubbornly wedded, you know, although the NHS structurally and in terms of its staff and financially is undoubtedly in crisis and we hear that every day you know people the nhs as an idea as something which i think you know the, the most the, the british well we know the british public value it more highly than any other national institution more highly than the bbc more highly than the army or the royal family even you know according to the polls and that commitment to the idea of you know what Nibeben called pure socialism that that when we're sick we get taken care of 
persists but I think there is a very deliberate uh, narrative coming across now of trying to detach people from that commitment to universal health care to comprehensive health care you know we see that in some of the policies coming through so that for example um, in York and in other areas now if you smoke or you have a body mass index of over 30 which is not that enormous incidentally it's not yeah, I think I've touched on 30 at times, yeah. It's not... It depends on your bill. Chubby, you know. But, uh, <laughs> if, if you have, anyway, if you're in that, those categories, and this is being rolled out, uh, you no longer have the right to any NHS uh, surgeries or procedures, apart from uh, if you're in an accident or you need something in emergency, but you wouldn't get any routine procedures at all. There's a blanket ban that's, on people. That's incredibly yeah. dystopian, isn't it? It's incredibly dystopian yeah. and you know the world college surgeons and the clinical experts have said this is wrong obviously there are some times when we need to have that discussion but a blanket ban is is just going to store up more problems for the future as and more cost for the future and they know that they know that um you know rachel maskell the mp for the area wrote a, a good article about this for open democracy actually but i think what's going on here is you know they've seen the success or the success perhaps until recently of the narrative of the undeserving and the scapegoats in relation to the benefit system and detaching people from that part of our our, our, our you know commitment to our welfare state and our safety net. And the same thing now, that sort of the idea of the undeserving is being brought into to the NHS. And the, the BBC's part in this, I mean, I just there was a panorama documentary a year or so ago about Liverpool. Uh, and again, they had a not an in-house guy, but an external producer, a guy called Kevin Sim, whose only previous qualification, as far as I could make out, was doing a controversial documentary about Princess Diana. So quite why they thought he was the guy to make a, a panorama special about the future of the NHS, I'm not sure. Uh, and he he, in a sense summarise that sort of neoconservative attitude to, you know, it's not the state's obligation to provide health care. You know, the idea that such expectations are, um, as I think Samuel Huntington said, you know, an excess of democracy that we need to, to row back from. Uh, and the guy who made that panorama programme talked about uh, some of the kinds of policies going on in Liverpool, which are indeed being rolled out nationally now in sustainability and transformation plans, he says, uh, he writes about the, the programme and he says, uh, true to form, the wise men at the top of the NHS at their headquarters have identified the source of the NHS's problems. It's us. We are victims of our own lifestyle choices, demographically ever more numerous and culturally driven by untamable expectations. We drink too much, we are too fat, we smoke and we do not exercise and the average age of the population is increasing. The pressure is intolerable. A morning at A&E or a GP surgery is like a scene from the day of the Triffids. No power on earth could save us from ourselves and we are lucky to live as long as we do. Nothing new here. Uh, when it began in 1948, it was thought that the demand for the NHS would trail off after an initial rush for treatment. By the 1950s, the NHS was already a fiscal nightmare, a bottomless pit. Free medicine for all, it turned out, was a stony road leading to an infinity of demand. That's still up on the BBC's website. Um, and it's absolute nonsense. You know, it's extraordinary. I, I, I find like one of the things I always notice about the BBC's healthcare as well is that they always had this assumption that, okay... Um, 
you know, it's healthcare's getting very expensive and therefore it would be cheaper to end up going to a privatised um, system or getting people to pay for particular treatments. But the whole premise of that discussion just seems completely unfounded because basically in, in either you're not providing certain treatments or or you're paying for them yourself. But it's not going to actually save money. I mean, unless they're actually suggesting that, you know, people should have less healthcare, which is in that case, at least I suppose they're being kind of explicit about. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, I, it's, it's not, it, there's no evidence for any of this kind of argument, really. It's just pure neoconservative rhetoric. Um, I mean, if you look at the, the Commonwealth Fund, you know, respected international think tank that actually compared cost effectiveness of health systems across the world, the NHS consistently uh, has come top. Uh, because it's a, a much more effective system and the, the classic comparison of course is with the US where because of their incredibly inefficient marketized system uh, the average US citizen pays as much in tax and this is pre-Obamacare I should say that, that the average US citizen pays as much in tax uh, for their basic fallback Medicare kind of system which is pretty rubbish they pay as much in tax as the average British citizen does for the whole of the NHS. And then the average American citizen pays as much again out of their pockets for private health insurance to be able to get something halfway decent. Because having a marketised health system, even free market advocates like Kenneth Arrow have said, the market just doesn't work in healthcare, we're never going to have that sort of perfect information that enables us to make those choices and to make the kind of market fantasy works. Uh, I mean, this is something that I think is, is never properly examined in the media. The fact that there is no evidence, you know, quite right, it's often presented as we can't afford this system, so we must look at the private sector. Whereas, in fact, there is simply no evidence at all that privatisation improves uh, clinical services in a cost-effective way. Not a shred. I mean, there is, there is literally one paper which I, when I see them say, oh, there is some evidence. I know exactly what paper they're talking about. Right. There is a paper from the London School of Economics uh, from a, a few years ago, which purported to show that if you had more competition between hospitals, you had better outcomes after cardiac arrest. I mean, all the paper actually showed, and it's been thoroughly debunked, was that if you have more hospitals... You have better outcome. It's nothing to do with competition, um, and, but you know they're not—they're not really um, challenged on that in the media in the way that they should be. Uh, and the other aspect, which I think is you know really interesting, is that I think ordinary people who engage with services and use services actually find it quite easy to grasp when I've had conversations with them that if you fragment and you introduce lots of different providers that it actually increases transaction costs I mean they wouldn't use that term but it increases transaction costs and it increases bureaucracy so when I have that conversation with people you know about the fragmentation and the privatization they say oh is that why I get you know letters with six different letterheads on pushing me from pillar to post and you know they can see the inefficiency of that whereas I think anyone who's been through university in the last 30 years unless they've been quite resistant, including most of our journalist class, right. you know, unless they've been quite resistant to the, the, the lessons of the Chicago boys, they have internalized this idea that bureaucracy equates to state provision. 
the idea that bureaucracy might actually be uh, a wasteful bureaucracy might actually be something uh, that applies when you try and make a market work in an area that it, it doesn't work is is a little bit kind of beyond beyond their understanding. Yeah, it doesn't um, it doesn't fit that the sort of the poetry of the Chicago school, does it? Because bureaucracy is a, is a state phenomenon, and it and it doesn't exist in the lean and hungry private sector. Um, exactly. This is one of the key things, wasn't it? That I think that a, a real victory for you know the neoliberals was convincing people of this idea that that bureaucracy is something that only happens in in the state and it couldn't exist in the corporate sector or in markets. And what's so extraordinary about it is that I mean, David Graeber has written a bit on this about how actually, I mean, empirically, whenever you try and create markets, it always creates bureaucracy. And when you think about it, like, yeah, any any real world encounter with organisations, private sector organisations, of, of course, they're, you know, incredibly um, bureaucratic, and of course, markets are going to end up like that because they have to be regulated by yeah accountants and and the rest of them. But somehow, in for the yeah, like you said, for the journalists, um, it's kind of an article of faith that that's a problem of state provision, and that the more companies we have involved, like the less you know that will sort of cut red tape or something. And it's just it's just total nonsense. Well, I, I remember writing a press release as a campaigner where I, I said that privatisation was less efficient, and a journalist who'd been to, I think, what's known, what's one of the best journalism training colleges in the land, corrected that to, assumed that must be a typo, and corrected it to privatisation is more efficient. I mean, that's, that, you know, I, I read an article about the bureaucracy in the privatised NHS and the amount that that's costing, which when we have these kind of endless angst-ridden discussions in the media about, you know, how can we afford to continue looking after our, our ageing population and all of that kind of stuff. And incidentally, you know, the ageing population canard is not new. I mean, we've known that we had a baby boom 70 years ago for 70 years, you know, um, and the... the, the reality is that people need more health care in the, the last six months of their life, whether that comes when they're 85 or 65, you know, but we have this uh, sort of, you know, apocalyptic demography, I, I've seen it called in the media. So Jer Jeremy Hunt, for example, said that uh, the ageing population was a, um, what was it, the ageing population was a problem more serious than climate change, he said. <laughs> Which from Which was, you know and because this is i mean apocalyptic demography is a classic it's been identified by american academics as a classic ta tactic of neoliberals who want to detach us from health and other services and say we can't afford it leaving moot the question of who is this we that can't afford it right. and who is going to have to pay if we don't provide it collectively and the bureaucracy that's been set up which is to enable that that shift away from collective provision you know it's not just uh, lawyers and accountants it's press people it's regulators as you say you have situations where uh, in one clinical commissioning group uh, there's 211 clinical commissioning groups in the in England in one clinical commissioning group they employ 40 public relations members of staff you know and you have this incredibly fragmented and bureaucratic system with doctors and nurses having to spend hours on paperwork they tell me not for clinical need but so that every interaction can be coded and priced as a part of a pathway of care and potentially traded and bid and undercut so so the estimate of how much that's actually costing the nhs uh, quite consistently see an estimate of around 
10 billion comparing previous and, and current uh, expenditures, but that's actually based on really old figures. And I did an investigation and spoke to a number of experts who felt that it would not be unreasonable to put a figure of 30 billion, this is out of an NHS budget of around 120 billion a year, that perhaps as much as a quarter of that is being wasted on, on the bureaucracy of, of the market. But there's a sort of an incredible... Um, lack of internet intellectual curiosity about that i would say not just not just from journalists but also from uh think tanks highly respected think tanks uh, i had quite a um should we say a forthright discussion with someone from the king's fund often held up as it is as sort of impartial experts and they do do a lot of really good work but they also make some quite a, a lot of their money from advising local nhs managers on how you can manage this competitive process, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, they don't, they have, you know, when they've done their reports on thinking the unthinkable and should we begin to introduce charging and stuff like that, the waste that's going on in this market bureaucracy is, is not something that they ever want to examine. Because I think they brought over in the um, 80s somebody who sort of pioneered the idea of the in internal market, whose name I forget now, but he was, he had, he had studied at the Rand Corporation, like Kenneth Barrett had actually, but it, started to develop this idea of, um, you know, introducing healthcare. And I think that's where the, um, that contracting out um, cleaners and auxiliary services stuff started as a result of the King's Fund. I think I'm right about that. Yes, um, well, the, na the name escapes me at the moment. And, and also, you're, you're right that a lot of these threads go back to the 80s and another one to be really aware of at the moment uh, and uh, is being kind of, talked about quite a lot by people like Alan Milburn, for example, who's, as I say, writing an NHS plan at the moment, kindly, is uh, the idea of personal health budgets. Again, I've seen this sort of talked up that, you know, people will be empowered by being given, as they have been in social care, um, money to manage their own uh, healthcare and to purchase it from either NHS or private providers. And of course, you know, the private providers, as you say, can prioritise glossy carpets and don't necessarily uh, do things like train staff or have emergency departments. So, you know, we, we actually lose out um, uh, in that system. But yeah, the idea of personal health budgets which is essentially goes right back to the 80s, if not before, uh, and work done for Thatcher by the Centre for Policy Studies on vouchers, and that the only way to detach the British public from the idea of a centrally provided NHS towards an insurance system is to begin to give people vouchers, now they'll be electronic, you know, same system, personal health budgets, where which subsidises their healthcare up to a basic level and if they want something a bit more luxurious or expert uh, they can top up and this isn't dystopia this is actually being rolled out already in maternity care it's being trialed in people with uh, severe learning disabilities some of the most vulnerable patients in fact um, Jesus. yeah it's quite worrying Ed Miliband incidentally was quite went quite into this route for a while and then kind of backed away from it and we haven't really heard much about it from the current Labour opposition. It's interesting because it, this idea of um, empowering the consumer was exactly what led to the massive pension mis-selling mis scandals of the 1980s. I mean, it's exactly the same idea that you you um, you make the individual consumer the sovereign in, in these transactions and then you find out that actually they don't know very much and they're easy meat for... Uh, rip-off artists. Um, 
And uh, I can't help thinking that's why it's such an attractive model. <laughs> it's like, um, it, I mean, it yeah. will lead to um, fleecing and oligopoly and all sorts. Um, yeah. I would like to, um, I'd like to take take a few minutes, Caroline, while we've got you, just to talk through, a, because one of the things that's striking is that the NHS is a very large institution, and we've touched on this. The fact that it's a large institution which which deals with with huge numbers of people, and yet it manages, or, or the journalistic establishment managed to misdescribe what's going on with it so profoundly and consistently. And I'd like to talk a bit about the ways in which you'd like to see the NHS change, and also the way in which the NHS relates to, the, as it were, the communication system change. Because, I mean, naively, to me, it sounds like the, all the evidence points to the idea that, that we should just make it much more public, um, that we should push out private provision just everywhere in the NHS, um, and also perhaps look at ways of making it a more public institution in the sense of being one that we, we understand more intimately. So can, can you share some of your thoughts on that? Hmm. I mean, I think, you know, there, there is a tendency... Uh, in some sections of NHS campaigning to sort of say let's just go back let's just go back to how it was before in the 1950s it was great you know and and occasionally I come across doctors involved in NHS campaigning who kind of have that attitude right. and you know of course the reality is that the NHS like the rest of British society was in the past an extremely hierarchical class-bound gendered racialized organization you know so i think you're absolutely right we need to kind of have a, a forward-looking uh vision on that you know having said that we aren't going to get there while it's while the, the the corporate vultures are circling you know their their ability to to keep things secret and not even report on um you know the way that patients and staff are really being treated in that organization is is going to stop I would say, the transformative change that we need. So I do think we need to go back to a much more um, public system yeah. where the opportunities for cronyism and waste are excluded. One, one of the ways that's been suggested of doing that, as at least a starting point, is I mentioned Alison Pollock earlier, uh, one of the leading academics, sort of pro-NHS academics, who has for the last few years been working on something called the NHS Bill. It was called the NHS Reinstatement Bill. And it essentially... Uh, re restores the duty uh, around providing a much more comprehensive healthcare system, which, of course, a much more comprehensive system isn't very interesting to the private sector. They make their money by picking and choosing who and what they treat. You know, so that's mm -hmm. the key point, really. So, so her bill, the NHS bill, uh, and and you know, people sort of say, oh, it's impossible to undo. You know, we're so far down this line. But in Scotland, uh, they've done it. You know, they've got a, they, they reverted away from the system of competing trusts uh, and, the, and the, the NHS bill sort of reverts to some extent to the Scottish model where indeed public satisfaction with the Scottish NHS is rising as it is declining in England. So that would seem to me to be um, one quite sensible step. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the bill is, is not being sort of strongly pushed formally by Labour currently, although it was um, uh, signed by Corbyn when he was a backbencher uh, in his previous incarnation. Um, but I do think as well that, you know, the 
there obviously needs to be a lot more uh, grassroots involvement. One of, one of the most successful attempts at getting uh, the public to have more of a voice and patients to have more of a voice in healthcare provision um, were the community health councils, uh, which weren't perfect, but did quite a good job of bringing together campaigners, patients, professionals to, you know, they had quite a wide ranging remit. They could go in and do unannounced inspections in, in facilities and right. stuff like this. Um, Alan Milburn abolished them because they were too successful, I, I suspect. So I think we could we could definitely look to um, bringing back. Um, who who, that who introduced those? Do you, do you know? Sorry. Who who was responsible for introducing them? Was it was it another Labour health minister or? Oh, that's a good question, and I don't know the answer. I'm afraid. No, um, not to worry. But, I, mean, I mean, yeah. The, I mean, issues of patient engagement have been, you know, and, and who's responsible for that, and, and not just engagement, that's such a mealy-mouthed word, isn't it, God? But um, of, uh, you know, pa genuine patient and staff involvement um, have, have sort of come and gone and waxed and waned over over the years. Since the abolition of the community health councils, They've we, we, we tend now to have patient feedback as a commodity, things like the friends and family test, um, and incidentally, you, you asked earlier about the, the left, the Labour's relationship to some of this stuff. Some of the people most vocal in um, backing Owen Smith's campaign, if we can recall Owen Smith's campaign. Uh, how could we forget? Before. How could we forget that polished yeah. communications professional? It is quite easy to forget, isn't it? But uh, no, some some of the people sort of behind some of the websites that were set up, like, um, websites like Saving Labour, were people who had made their money either as NHS professionals or as, um, in one case, uh, setting up a company to um, to measure and commodify patient feedback. You know, so our our views about our healthcare essentially are being reduced to a tick box exercise that can be datafied and traded, and we can be patted on the head and told how you know we all we all love things and we're all very happy. Right. I mean. We a good example of the failures yeah. of that kind of approach is that Ian Patterson, the guy who was just recently in the news, private surgeon, done NHS work in the news for doing entirely unnecessary mastectomies. Yeah. If um, you know, he got great friends and family ratings because it's a bit like the glossy carpet. You know, yeah. if people are very nice to you, yeah. then you you can't run a health service on that kind of. Uh, well, I think um, feedback, really. Harold Shipman was very highly regarded by his patients because he, indeed, you know, and he, indeed, and some of the worst brutes in, in American healthcare as well. Yeah, you know, so yeah. I think I think the getting away from this awful idea of engagement as yeah. a commodity, and and you know, and of course the role of the trade unions as well. I mean, you know, we we had the spectacle in recent years of trade unionists going on strike, I believe, over the privatisation of uh, part of pathology um, being locked out you know the lockout i mean that's a pretty uh reactionary uh, labor relations tactic you know so whilst on the one hand they're talking about mutuals and cooperatives and listening to staff voices the the attitude well we've seen it in the junior yeah. doctor spike and, and to the nurses more recently you know the attitude to trade unions has been uh, appalling really and uh, you know i i think reinstating their right to strike as a last resort would be a good or you know undoing the trade union bill and, and all of those things would be quite essential as well interesting yeah yeah well i mean having having looked looked at some of the literature on this i, I think i would put in a i'd put in a plea for introducing popular impeachment because i think a lot of these people 
I'm not saying they're cr they're criminally guilty or anything, but I think that we should just expel them from public life. <laughs> and I don't see I don't see any problem with the idea that, that these people can't be allowed within, say, thirty yards of a of an elected member of parliament. <laughs> I um, think I think Mark I think Mark Thomas when do you remember he had that thing about a hundred radical ideas? Or, right, or, right. You know, and and one of his was that anyone who's sort of appearing as a public speaker ought to wear a shirt with like the brands of all the people that are sort of somehow connected to them or sponsoring their think tanks or whatever. Right. Um, Seems and, and I rather like that idea. I mean, one really important figure in this, which very few people, I did a talk at the weekend and I said, who's heard of Simon Stevens? And only one person put their hand up. I, I'm going to put you guys on the spot now. Do you, have you heard of Simon Stevens? Um, yeah, he's the head of NHS England. Exactly, he's the head of NHS England. Very few people have heard of him. Those who have heard of him, um, you know, may be unaware that he started his career as an advisor to Blair. He was the guy who basically wrote that NHS plan in 2000, which set the, the trajectory of, the, of introducing the market. He then went off and spent 10 years working for aforementioned United Health, largest in America, largest health corporation in the world. Um, he wrote some stuff in the Financial Times when the NHS Act was going through in 2012, uh, defending the Act and saying, amongst other things, that uh, collective bargaining in the NHS, national pay bargaining in the NHS, had been responsible for thousands of deaths, uh, which was quite remarkable. Um, but he's been rebranded in our media, as in our liberal media, as something of a hero. Polly Toynbee seems to think he's uh, the NHS's best chance. I've seen similar... That's, uh, no, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because he's, he's billed as a kind of philosopher king. Like you read yeah. profiles of him, and he's like he's the most powerful man in Britain, and you've never heard of him. And he's got all these, you know, he's got yeah, he understands like incredible technocratic detail how things work. He's kind I mean, of he's our he's he, kind of our Macron in a way, right? Very, well, very much so. And this whole idea of technocracy is is kind of intrinsic to the act, where Jeremy Hunt now can sort of take his hands off and say, "I don't really have a duty here anymore." Of course, I'm very worried about the NHS. I heard someone describe his attitude as akin to that that you would have of an elderly aunt who were you know much loved but of course you know not all, not long for this world right not all there kind of thing yeah you know not, yeah. not my and meanwhile stevens has held up and our liberal media faked him you know when he wrote the plans building on the 2012 act uh for uh more involvement of the private sector of you know perhaps um, to some extent, addressing this purchaser-provider split that was had set off some of the problems by bringing it back together, but with a hefty dollop of private sector involvement, which they, or partnership as they like to call it, right. um, and and lots around selling off of the NHS estate, which we see now, lots around replacing um, skilled staff with with less skilled staff and with with apps and technology of dubious value and, and minimal evidence base. And when he wrote all of that, um, you know, the, the response, so Andrew Vaughnsley writing in The Observer said of this report, it's an excellent report. My only concern about it is that it has the wrong picture on the cover. You know, right. that was that was the level of the critique. I was going to say, that's a, that's a deep analysis that we've come to expect from our <laughs> liberal lions. Funnily enough, I mean, you know, I, the, the, if you want to really know what's going on, you're probably better off reading The Telegraph. I mean, Fraser Nelson uh, 
was pretty much the only mainstream commentator who got that report right. And, you know, Polly Toynbee said, oh, it doesn't have the C word in it. It doesn't have competition in it. And that's great. It means it's wonderful. Fraser Nelson said, you know, it doesn't have the C word in it, but don't be fooled. Simon Stevens is smart enough to know that the way you do a revolution is not by announcing it, but by doing it through a plethora of local plans. And that's exactly what's unfolding now. So, yeah, I don't suppose you expected me to recommend uh, as my as the first uh, media source to go to to be the Telegraph. But um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, it's but often the way. hierarchy, Polly Toynbee would be would be below it. <laughs> Um, speaking she of, read it. it didn't say competition. It's all it's all above board. I'm sure she didn't just do a word search on competition either. I'm sure she read it all. Of it. Now, um, where else should we be going for um, for useful and reliable information um, on what's happening in the NHS, Caroline? Well, uh, obviously, I have to plug my site at this point and, and say. Uh, our NHS, which is part of Open Democracy, we've been, uh, you know, we try and do stuff which um, addresses stuff that's going on in the news currently, but also gives a bit of context for people who, you know, are finding their way through this for the first time. Um, so that's uh, www.opendemocracynet forward slash our NHS. I would, and I would, I would just quickly second that. I mean, I think Open Democracy has an amazing record in covering subjects that, uh, that other media outlets shy away from. I think particularly in this area of uh, narrative formation, spin, and the, the kind of subordination of the media to the corporate agenda, I think, I think Open Democracy has, has published some stuff that uh, is, is really seminal. Um, yeah. So it couldn't, couldn't be recommended more highly. We do get the corporate lawyers on the phone occasionally, but... Uh... We haven't got. We haven't had too much trouble from them. Uh, the, I mean, other sites. I mean, there's. I would definitely recommend Spinwatch. I know you had Tamsin Cave from Spinwatch on on recently, and she's written some stuff for us. But there's also stuff that she's writing, which, as you say, around this kind of issues of lobbying and setting the narrative is really key to understand. Um, and I think also it's more of a campaigning organisation, but I. I quite impressed at the moment with the work that we own it are doing they've got right. a big campaign against um the privatization of, of nhs professionals um so so that's the site i would look at i mean to be honest i tend to go to some extent to the trade press to figure out what what's been going on so the health services journal is terribly market friendly and a lot of its stuff is paywalled but you can get access to some of its stuff um, right. behind the paywall and and health investor you can get free access to some of their articles that's a fascinating read bet, if you want yeah. to know really kind of driving um uh, you know a, a lot of the agenda and the kind of i heard a, i heard something once on the radio early on in my sort of nhs career where they said um the thing about the NHS is it spends three money on three. It spends its money on three main areas: um, buildings, drugs, and staff. And you can't possibly, obviously, spend less money on buildings or drugs than <laughs> the staff. And I think, you know, just just going back to your question about uh, my vision of a future NHS, it would be one in which actually uh, medical professionals have more time to spend with their patients, less time on paperwork, more time to, to build a therapeutic relationship, and were therefore less reliant on just giving someone a pill or a treatment to, you know, because that's all they really had time to think about, which obviously serves the interests of uh, Big Pharma more than anyone else. 
Um, that's a fascinating area, I think. Yeah, and I think it and it it, it takes us into um, into a, 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 another great kind of broad horizon, which I hope will I very much hope we'll we'll have a chance to talk with you again on the uh, on the show because um, there's so much to to talk about, and in an in an hour we've barely scratched the surface. Um, Caroline, tell our listeners how we can how they can find you on social media and follow your work. Sure. So I I tweet at uh, Caroline J Malloy, which is M O L O Y. Caroline J Malloy, uh, and also for our NHS at at our NHS underscore OD. Um, so and the website I've already mentioned, uh, and I'm always keen to engage with people on social media. We also have a Facebook site, uh, our NHS Open Democracy, and. Uh, yeah, should be easy enough to find on social media. Um, I also just, in terms of media and stuff, I also just wanted to give a shout out to um, some really, I'm sure you probably discussed these guys, you know, there is some really great local media initiatives going on, things sure. like the Bristol Cable, the Salford Star, you know, they've done some really good um, ongoing investigations because I think we do have to understand what's going on now because it's been so fragmented. We do have to understand what's going on uh, at a local level as as well and of course it's more meaningful for people as well when it's when it's about their local hospital that's absolutely right and i think one of the one of the things we have to deal with in the media is this sort of chauvinism of the center uh where people feel that westminster is the only point of reference that matters um and that clearly isn't the case as you say as particularly as things get more fragmented and marketized caroline it's been an absolute pleasure and a revelation to have you on the show today thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us and Thank um, you, Caroline. That was great. And what we'll what we'd love to do is if if you tweet out some some sources and um, any any sort of any th- thoughts that uh, follow from this, then we'll obviously amplify them through our channels over the next few days. But thanks again for for joining us. Ooh.